welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, hey, hey. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another Knock On Podcast. This podcast is going to be specific to all of your questions off social media. Um, On the Instagram page, I made a post today asking what you all wanted to hear about, and that's what I'm going to jump into. So just going to start at the top and see how far I can get. First question, which actually there was several of them that I saw after scrolling through, but uh, first question came from Matt Newton 67 asking favorite turkey tactics. Um, and how my setup for turkeys differ from deer or elk. I think I need to get someone who's a legitimate turkey hunter on a podcast because I don't know if I can call myself a legitimate turkey hunter. I've had turkey hunting success. Um, I feel like when I've gone out, I've figured out a way to fill tags, but I'm not a super, super passionate turkey hunter i like turkey hunting i think it's an awesome way to keep you in check i really like there's a couple recipes i have for wild turkey that i like so um i try to partake in that the year that i was probably most serious about turkey hunting was actually the year that i had my mouth tab and was really wanting to learn to shoot with my mouth and i was using that as an opportunity to uh, to practice and make sure I was being accurate and make sure I was comfortable with it and everything like that before I went on to bear and grizzly. But, uh, for me, turkey hunting and especially saying this, I'm from the Midwest right now. So turkey hunting here in Iowa is quite a bit different than how I grew up turkey hunting, uh, down in the South or in the Mississippi Delta. Um, a lot of, location you know going out locating the birds and having to move in on the birds uh you know right at first light make those adjustments whereas now um i've been in the same place long enough or hunted the same places long enough for turkeys to where patience is probably a bigger factor than running and gunning so to speak um so i'll talk through a few things One of the things that I've had a lot of success with is using my trail cameras to more or less pattern the birds here around the states that are close to Iowa. Um, I've just figured out that with turkeys, they do seem to make certain types of loops or certain types of uh, patterns during this time of the season. There's normally areas where you can figure out where the birds like to pitch down to they're not going to be pitching down to the same exact spot every day Um, i think just nature mother nature in general or survival instincts teaches them not to do the exact same thing every day but you will start to build a pretty good pattern of where they're roosting most likely and then where they like to go the earlier in the season 
that you're hunting them, the more likely you are to be able to predict, you know, where a lot of them are going down to. And then as the flocks break up, you start to have a lot of separation. Um, in other words, uh, as an example, Nebraska was a place that I always hunted earliest. And there was times where I hunted there, there was still snow on the ground during this opening season. Um, the birds were, the flocks were very, very dense. They were all the birds were in one location. So it was fairly easy to stay close to the roost. A lot of birds would be staging up there prior to going up to roost, or they would be really close to that area pitching down. Um, but then, you know, a year or two later, the there wasn't snow. The spring was a lot earlier, and those flocks were, the flock in general was broken apart more where there was a lot of, birds in multiple locations um, and in those cases you have to get out do a little scouting figure out where some of the gobblers are uh, with their hens and kind of get into those areas when I figure out more or less where those areas are I try to look at it as where's the food and where are their strutting areas those are two areas that are pretty consistent um, another one would be staging area prior to flying up to the roost um, here at home I've had a lot of really uh, successful hunts after work like after five o'clock going to those areas where my cameras have seen birds staging up and almost flocking up before flying up to their roost there's several areas here um, where I hunt in Iowa where that's pretty pretty consistent year after year after year going in those areas and honestly a lot of times calling in the late afternoons uh, is a pretty good time because they kind of get get back together prior to flying up I know a lot of people don't like to necessarily hunt the entire day like that it gets a little tedious but honestly if you can only pick a few hours to hunt I've honestly had more success if I only had a few hours to hunt in the evening versus the morning, because in the morning, especially when those hens aren't all on nest yet, those gobblers are going to follow that lead hen a lot of times. Um, they'll follow her around until she hits her nest. And then, you know, later in the morning, those gobblers are responsive again. So uh, bottom line is, Try to pattern your birds, figure out where they are. If you've got some uh, stealth cams, get them out and get them either by food, uh, you know, picked fields, bean fi old bean fields, picked corn fields. Uh, they like, you know, fresh planted, fresh planted clover fields and things like that that are starting to sprout. They're really into eating bugs and stuff this time of year. So get there, otherwise figure out those staging areas or where they like to fly down to to strut first thing in the morning. Um, an example of that would be one time a few years back I found uh, a few birds that were on public land. And since most of the public land was not groomed, there was a lot of... Uh, a lot of CRP grass and real thick timber is along this creek bottom, but um, 
the DNR had done a control burn in this little pocket. So the birds were pitching into there every morning, drying their feathers off, strutting around, and they would do that until heading out into that thicker grass. So learning that pattern was absolutely key in having success. So try to find those strut areas as well. Um, lastly is don't be discouraged if the bird that you hear on the roost doesn't come right to you. A lot of times if that bird uh, responds back to you when he's still in the roost and you're you know, in your blind or whatever, which I'm a big blind hunter, um, if they respond back, uh, they know you're there, but they may have another hen right there with them that they're going to follow around until she hits her nest. And then once that happens, those birds are going to be super responsive. It's pretty notable that any gobbler that's responding later in the morning, or a lot of times I've heard my buddy say, if, if you can get a gobbler to talk after lunchtime, uh, he's as good as dead because those gobblers that are being uh, vocal after the late morning, they're definitely looking for a place to go. So um, my game warden calls it a, a gentleman's hunt where you kind of don't rush out in the morning uh, to get there during dark and, and hunt and try to call the birds right off the roost. Uh, he said that he has just as much luck hanging out having breakfast, having a coffee, letting those turkeys pitch down, do their thing, uh, let those hens go out to nest, and then get out there later in the morning and wait to hear one of those lone gobblers fire up because their ability to be responsive uh, is a lot higher when those hens aren't with them. So that's pretty much what I do. Uh, nothing super... Um, I don't know, nothing really different. I just play the same cards that I always play, do some recon, have patience. I'm also not afraid to sit in a turkey blind all day if I know it's an area where turkeys are coming at some point. You know, if I have intel from a camera that says at some point in the day, maybe they're not predictable, but every day there's turkeys going through this small clover plot or along the edge of this field, or if they're coming through this part of the timber is if I see that happening, then a lot of times just being there long enough um, with turkeys, if they're moving through and if you've got intel that they're passing by two days solid in the same place, for me anyway has has led up to success and then other than that as much as you know I hate to say it I know sometimes I get a hard time because certain products that I like are not cheap and they're expensive um, but I'm just here to tell everyone else out there you know I use things that I think work sometimes I use things that are cost effective they're cheap and they're a lot less money than anything on the market and they work great and i'm proud to say that but other times there are certain things that are just worth the money and one of those things are dave smith decoys they're not a sponsor i can tell you um their decoys for me instantly showed a difference in how turkeys responded and i'm talking turkeys that would just be walking along and they would see the decoy before I ever knew they were there and just 
come screaming into those decoys. Uh, the decoys were recommended to me by someone who was super successful with turkeys probably 10 years ago, and it took me four years before I listened to them and actually bought them. And once I did, you know, honestly, it's the same. Um, I like to have the bedded hen, and I'll put a standing hen next to it, and a lot of times I'll use the jake. Now, once you start to see, um, once you start to see those gobblers, you know, be a little bit more aggressive. If you're doing some scouting and you see the gobblers being more aggressive, then that's a good time to take a strutter out. I do have a strutter as well. Um, the strutter seems to always work when there's multiple toms together. Um, but the Jake is something that works good for really any size turkey. Um, but the bedded hen seems to be the difference maker for me. Um, so I hope that helps. That's what I do for turkeys. Uh, let's see here. The real Bigfoot 81. Um, <laughs> let's see. Well, you're just giving me a compliment, so I appreciate that. Probably should have read these first, but I'm doing it on the fly, so I apologize for that. Um, let's see here. Um, something to do with target archery. Bodie Hunter Turner is asking for. So, Hey man, we just went through um, several weeks of school knock. One thing that I'll say is um, when I was scanning through a lot of these, I did see some people asking questions um, specific to shooting up and downhill angles, um, as well as you know learning to uh, to have angle compensation and how to use an inclinometer or utilize your rangefinder as well. So. After seeing a lot of those comments, and this is stemming off a lot of people that um, have booked into the total archery challenge that I posted, um, which I need to get into that here in a second, but it actually led me to believe that I need to do a school of knock specific to the total archery challenge or specific to technical courses like the total archery challenge. So... I'm going to commit to giving you guys, I don't know if it'll be a full 12 weeks, but definitely leading up to um, the Total Archery Challenge, I will be prepping as well, and I'll be practicing, so I'll go ahead and make that into a series. Um, it's not going to happen right away, and that the reason for that is because even though I know that's pretty much going to be my big event for the year in regards to what I'm preparing for, so just like always I talk about selective cycling and I'm a big believer in not to over prepare or over train so I'll probably start about six weeks out um, from the total archery challenge so right around June 1st or maybe just after that memorial weekend we'll go ahead and kick off um, another school of knock series specific to uh i guess total archery challenge slash field archery um and we'll go through several of these types of things so that kind of kills two birds with one stone that answers the question for j underscore miller 77 and also bodie hunter turner um give you guys some stuff here pretty soon um 
There's also a question right here close by from JD Hap asking, um, are you going to shoot at the Total Archery Challenge in Big Sky? Yes, we will be at Big Sky. There, um, we're actually, we don't have um, a, a, a final contract for Big Sky because we're waiting on the ski hill to do that. But um, Total Archery Challenge, uh, Sean and myself have been communicating diligently about having a knock-on event at TAC at Big Sky. So um, as soon as we get the contract and we can do that, we're going to do that. If nothing else, yes, there will be a knock-on experience for Big Sky on that Friday. However, it's not posted yet. I will post it when I can and when we have everything uh, finalized. But more or less, um, I do have a delegated amount of um, lift time for the Friday. First thing will be the first chairs up. Um, so just to give everyone kind of a recap here, um, for the Total Archery Challenge, there are actually two separate entities to that. One of the entities is the knock-on experience, which that was something that I had talked about on a previous podcast. Um, it was the original thing that we were going to do, which I was more or less slotting out or buying from Sean a certain amount of time for people that wanted to book into that event for a specific knock-on experience where they would be able to shoot with me and some of my friends that I'll have there and then also have an experience down at the knock-on trailers as well as getting to interact with um, some sponsors that are going to help put on um, some really cool activities um, for example, at the Salt Lake City one, everyone who booked into the Knocked On experience, um, they're going to be getting to go to a Black Rifle Coffee uh, party at Black Rifle HQ on the Thursday prior to the event. Um, and then we'll also be cooking uh, elk burgers for those people that are at that event. Um, and you'll also be able to have a pretty cool meet and greet immediately after our shoot times. Now, in addition to that, um, I decided to go ahead and sponsor the Total Archery Challenge for a course, which that went on the Total Archery Challenge website and literally sold out in minutes. So there will not only be a knock-on experience which is the first two hours on Friday that will be pretty much us going up on that that lift um, in multiple groups and I plan on shooting a few targets with each of the groups so I'll start off with group one I'll shoot four targets or so interact with everybody and then I'm going to hang up on that target and let that next group catch me then I'll shoot with them for a few targets so in other words if you book the knock-on experience if you're the last time slot I'll be shooting with you on some of the last targets if you're the first shot first time slot I'll be shooting with you on some of the first targets however there are going to be some special guests there that you're going to get to shoot with as well I've got some UFC guys um, I've got some NHL guys, I've got some military guys, I've got some industry guys, 
so you're gonna have fun uh, also Sharon will be there as well so if you uh, want to see me get my butt kicked on the on the the tack range she's gonna be there giving me lessons on how to shoot I'm kidding of course we're gonna be having fun and we're all gonna be shooting but yeah uh, Shaz will be there little dud special guests it'll be a good time um, and then anyone who booked in with the total archer challenge for the actual knock-on course this is an entire separate course that you're gonna shoot just the same as you would shoot um, the total archery challenge with multiple um, multiple days or multiple time slots depending on what you booked so hopefully um, we're gonna be able to work that same thing out in Big Sky too and for those of you who are in other areas that have the total archery challenge and you've said you know why why aren't you coming to Pennsylvania um, honestly this just worked out really well for the schedule um, these two shoots are back to back um, I've got both in both of those areas I have people that are gonna financially help this um, and so that's why I'm there you know that's pretty much home base for uh, Black Rifle, for Hoyt, for Traeger, so, uh, and then Big Sky is obviously home base for Sitka, so um, that's specifically why I'm there, and depending on how it goes, we may move into other areas um, for next year, but for now, uh, we're just going to do this, and um, Sharon and I really wanted to do what we could to support tack and these two events made the most sense for right now and also those times fit um, people's time slots or time available uh, that I wanted to have there to uh, to make special appearances as well so hopefully that clarifies everything and there will be definitely emails going out as well as announcements on our end for total archery challenge um specific details you know when will this be where do we meet etc all that um there'll be specific invitations for the experience sent out um, and then obviously the TAC will give more specifics to where the knock-on archery range is and etc. But yeah, we're in the process of planning a lot of really cool things for that. Um, and until everything is pretty much written in stone or signed off on, um, I don't really want to get too in-depth about it. The Salt Lake City one, I did get in-depth about it. I actually, once Sean had confirmation and, and uh, we kind of signed our contract together, um, and once Sharon and I decided to sponsor that range, they actually posted it um, without me being able, without me announcing it, and it sold out in minutes. Um, but then for the experience, obviously, I posted that, and that sold out super quick too. So I appreciate everything for that, and believe me, whoever signed up for the experience you will definitely get more than your money's worth for um, what you paid to do that you're gonna get more than that just in participation prizes so um, it's gonna be a super super cool event uh, let's see here moving on to the next question this is from Red Forest Outdoors 
If you're shooting a 30 inch draw but feel like you still need another half inch or inch, is there any way to get it longer if you're already maxed out on the cams? Um, so you're saying he's shooting a Hoyt RX1 right now. So yeah, I honestly, the, the way that I get my um, bows to work when I do bow reviews or when I shoot bows that max out at 30 inches, what I do is when available, I'll pull the grip off uh, with the RX1 you can do that and you will get a little bit of space with the rx3 you can't really do that um the other thing is you have the option to either get a longer string or um shorten slightly shorten the cables either one of those are going to give you added draw length um, for me personally i like to shorten the cables so i'll add twist to my cables equally on both sides uh, remember on the RX1 series with like the split yoke system on the bottom, you do need to uh, put your twists up on the top yoke or if you're going to order uh, strings and, you know, strings and cables aftermarket ones, uh, just order them, you know, about an eighth inch shorter to start and you should still be able to have the ability to twist them up a little bit more. Now I am going to take a drink right now because I have to to keep my, my mouth and my throat lubricated. Uh, for those of you who have made comments you don't like me drinking or eating on podcasts, I apologize, but I do it. Right now I'm actually drinking cold brew. I'm really into that. I'm into cold brew and I'm into bone broth right now. That's my two things, my two jams. Um, so hopefully that answers your question, Red Forest Outdoors. Next question is from Evans Dad one um, Is there a right distance for tuning or testing arrows? How many shots for us average people uh, to know if they are tuned properly? So honestly, all of that um, is relative to kind of what your skill level's at or... I don't know. I don't know if skill level is the right word, but more or less your honest evaluation of where you feel like you have the ability to truly, you know, have a comparison where you feel like the results are, you know, I don't know, the result, you have confident results. Um, for example, if I'm shooting a lot and if I'm in a very stable environment, meaning flat ground, no wind, I've been shooting quite a bit, um, I feel really comfortable shooting, I literally do my tuning at about 80 to 100 yards. However, if there's times a year where I'm not shooting a lot, I've been traveling a lot, you know, I may, maybe only shooting, getting to shoot once a week or something like that then I do that at 60 yards, sometimes 50 yards. Um, do it at a level, the further out you go, the more you're going to magnify mistakes. So, uh, But what you have to be able to do is you have to be able to eliminate variables such as wind and flaws in your technique, or you also need to truly be able to identify good shots from poor shots. Now with that last one, there is kind of a little 
I don't know. There's a there's kind of a wild card in that when I say being able to identify good shots from poor shots. And the reason I say that is because some of the times when you're tuning arrows specifically, you almost need to know how an arrow reacts to your poor shots. And that comes in that starts to like factor into like the forgiveness, quote unquote, of that arrow. In other words, when I'm shooting a lot of indoor shoots, well, I shouldn't say when I'm shooting a lot of indoor shoots, I haven't shot a lot of indoor shoots in a long time. Um, but when I'm shooting indoors a lot and I'm really playing around with different arrows, I kind of factor in if I have a shot that's say a 7 out of 10 or an 8 out of 10, where is that miss? compared to another arrow with that same type of shot you know in other words if i'm if i'm shooting a shot that's a c plus b minus if i were to grade it is my miss a nine or is my miss an eight or a seven because that's something that's really important when you're trying to look at arrows and i say that because for the longest time i tried to get really large diameter arrows to shoot for me just because you know, I felt like I had a better chance, say, on a Vegas face shooting a 27-12 or a 26-13. However, for me, I just feel like my 26 or my 23-15s actually outshoot my 26s, um, even though the 26 has a larger diameter, as does a 27. But I feel like when I make a crappy shot, that bigger diameter shaft magnifies my mistake. So for me, I've gone back to what might be a little smaller overall, but what has the most forgiveness when I make a bad shot. Now, one of the things that people need to to remember as well is, you know, when it comes to tuning arrows, there's a lot of different things that you're really looking at. Um, are you out there specifically just working on center shot, trying to get um, your arrows to shoot the best, you know, group, so to speak, from knowing that your knock point height is correct and making sure that your center shot is correct, where you're able to shoot dead center at 20 or 80. Or are you looking at, you know, really trying to know how your bow matches the spine of your arrow and looking at what I refer to as the horizontal impact line? A lot of the groups that I see posted with people that are hashtagging School of Knock, I'm looking at a lot of these groups and so many of you are shooting groups that are more horizontal than vertical. And that's a pretty direct indicator of how your spine is matching your bow and believe me even though I try my best as to do most arrow manufacturers try their best to actually give you an arrow chart that is the best opportunity of a match for your bow there's still quite a bit of variation there and changing little things like the number of fletchings on the back of your arrow or the length of your fletching or a lighted knock or a wrap on the back or how long of a broadhead you're shooting like how long the ferrule is or how short it is all of these things start to slowly affect that arrow as does is your cam 
considered an aggressive cam or is it you know that that's the one thing that's hard right now with the arrow charts is compound bows are kind of lumped into a pretty large barrel and when I look at how a turbo cam feels versus how my normal cam feels or even how my cam feels um, if I'm shooting a current cam with a 85% module versus when I change to a 70% module um, to be able to take it to like Montana and states like that those those things slightly affect the arrow so paying attention to that horizontal grouping is really important but you need to realize that if if you're not following through properly if you have poor facial pressure all those things start to impact that grouping as well so again the further out you go the more it's going to magnify mistakes so knowing that area of how far can I shoot where I'm comfortable letting my pin float and I feel like I'm still making good shots I know I have good conditions I'm not trying to just aim the bow and make the release go off when I want it to you know that's one thing that I see commonly when people are trying to go too far too fast in regards to distance is once they start to go back to longer distances they start to focus on trying to be stiller and they lock up more because they want to aim and then you start making the release happen or your your pulling on the back wall isn't as the same as when you're shooting a closer distance that you're comfortable with um, all those things factor in so you really have to be true to yourself and identify what is the distance that I feel really comfortable still executing what I refer to as knowing your 10, finding your 10. If you know that you're making shots that when it comes to technique, you can sit there and say, yeah, I'm shooting nine or tens here on my shooting line, but yet downrange, I'm shooting sevens and eights. Well, that's when you can start to identify that. So, um, again it depends what you're looking at if you're looking for how far out are my bad shots going to be um, with this arrow versus this arrow then that's one one thing that you have to you know literally know what is your 10 and start to judge if I'm making a C plus B minus shot with this arrow my misses are going to N9 if I'm making that same crappy shot with this arrow I'm shooting a seven or an eight so that's one way to test then you look at horizontal impact which is again judging your horizontal grouping and that's an identifier of spine that's a different type of thing versus doing more of a center shot test which a center shot test is or a walk back test or a French tuning test you know I'll do it three feet and then I'll go back to 60 three feet 60 um, whereas when I'm just checking grouping and how the arrows actually built for that bow again 80 to 100 because I feel comfortable there if I'm not shooting a lot I might do that same test at 60 and just kind of factor in well normally at 60 I should be shooting three inches wide but I'm actually shooting six inches wide I think this arrow might need a little bit of tweaking and I'll start messing around with the poundage or the point weight to try to see how it reacts so there are variations but the most important thing is 
um, make sure you know what your threshold is for being able to truly evaluate your tests. Uh, next question here is from Loose Fletchings, uh, saying my Proforce is paper tuned. When I put my stabilizers on, I get a slight tail left tear. Is it me, torque, etc., or is there something that I'm missing? So, yeah, man, it's honestly it's uh it's pretty hard to to tell you for sure. Um, when I can't see you shoot all the time or at all. But um, the one thing I will say is um, when you, when people put stabilizers on, they really start to change how the bow reacts. That's one of the reasons why I haven't brought a stabilizer out yet is because the more I messed around with the stabilizers, the more I realized that it's really, really hard to find one that's overall good for the vast majority and the other thing too is once you start to add weight on that stabilizer and especially the people that add a lot of weight on the ends um, how that bow reacts and the way it's the the inertia or momentum of that stabilizers carrying it can greatly affect how that arrow tunes and that's one thing that I actually check when I'm doing some of my target builds is I'll shoot it with that stabilizer on, but then I'll also switch to about a 10 to a 12 inch stabilizer and shoot it as well. And if I'm able to get the same type of response through paper, it's telling me that that bow is projecting forward um, the same and that there's not a lot of torque in that system from the stabilizers. And again, you know, this is one of the reasons why I've just continually gone back to learning to shoot with a stabilizer that is not heavily weighted on the ends. I keep my the majority of my mass weight attached to the bow and beneath my hand. And I, I'm not a big advocate of having a lot of weight out there. I think as you torque the bow, it'll magnify how that bow responds. Um, so yeah it's hard to say man the other thing too is sometimes when people put their stabilizers on if they have more weight than their anatomy will allow they start to hitch their hip they start to compress the shoulder bend the arm and you see that string coming back further on their face um, and you know you're kind of setting yourself up to to have some of those issues um, it certainly could be torque, um, without a doubt. It could be torque, um, but without seeing you, it's hard to say. But more or less, how that bow is leaving your hand is changing from one way versus the other, you know, not having on versus having it on. So in a way, it's torque related, but I'm not here to say that you're necessarily torquing your bow because if you're doing it without the stabilizer and getting a perfect tear through paper it's it would be hard for me to say that you're naturally torquing your bow because i 
I don't think that you are if you're getting two different results. It could definitely be stabilizer related. If that bothers you, try removing some of the weight off your stabilizer or shortening. If you have a lot of weight on the back, try removing some of the weight. If you have a lot of weight on the front, same thing. Um, next thing is you could just shorten the overall length of that rod and put more mass weight uh, closer to the bow. Uh, let's see here. Next question. Uh, Delta Dogs 19 is asking, can you talk about saddle hunting? Um, so this is specific to the saddle stands. In other words, it's almost like, well, essentially it's a saddle. It's like, it's kind of like a little baby bouncer, but, uh, you're attached to the tree. You can climb a tree with spurs, at least when back when we used them we just used climbing spurs for like lineman climbers uh, and a safety belt around the tree and you're pretty much looping that just like a logger would as you go up the tree you're safe the whole time but then you hook on a tree saddle you, and you more or less you're sitting in this tree saddle and there a lot of times there's a small platform that you can take a lot of your weight off of but it lets you pivot around the tree and kind of swing around the tree um, a lot of people are using them I think if you're um, if you're someone who kind of bounces in and bounces out likes to move around hunts public land uh, might be something that you look at make sure you research the companies there's companies that do a good job with them there's companies that are sketchy so you know do some research you'll you'll see the good ones there'll be a lot of people commenting on them or showing them the use but it allows you to be mobile allows you to bounce around um i feel like they're a good option for you know i'm seeing delta dog so i assume you're from the delta um i know that they would have been a good option back when i lived in the mississippi delta just being able to go in and out of those public hunting areas a lot of people back then use like old man climbers uh, or homemade ones when I first started doing it but something like this would be pretty nice just because you really wouldn't have to have as big of a stand on your back uh, but you do have to realize you know it just like just like anything if you're sitting in a full containment harness for too long of a period of time without taking the pressure off there it's going to get old in regards to how you would practice honestly what i would recommend is uh you know safely do what they say to attach yourself to the tree and be safe attaching yourself to the tree and don't necessarily go all the way up just practice put a target out in the yard get on that thing and learn to utilize it um i think swinging around to kind of crazy angles in order to get your shot off isn't something that i would necessarily practice i think if you had to do it to make a shot on a on a big buck or something then obviously do what you need to do but i don't feel like you should always put yourself in a position where you're trying to you know shoot from a saddle with one foot off the stand and stretch all the way out on the line ideally if both of your feet can be on that platform and you be in a, a normal position to make a shot you're going to be better off otherwise it's no different than 
guys that are going out turkey hunting right now and trying to shoot uh, or learning to shoot from a seated position or shoot off your knees it's not ideal you're not going to be more stable you just need to maybe practice it a few times so that you can get by if you have to do it um, but I don't think I don't think it's wise to make shots where you know that you're not going to be as stable as you potentially can and that's what's going to happen if you're shooting with one foot on a stand and leaning all the way back on the saddle I think ideally you should practice uh, proper positioning getting your feet you know pointed towards that target or you know in other words drawn up I say pointed towards the target don't point your toes to the target you're you know shooting with the target directly off your left side as a right-handed shooter just like if you're in a batter's box uh, if you're a baseball player you know don't uh, don't try to get too familiar with making shots across your body and things like that because you are going to most likely start hitting your sleeve or if you're in those positions your pin's going to be floating around and you're going to be forced to want to make the trigger go off when you want it to go off and all that stuff kind of leads to bad habits if I'm honest uh, let's see next question here um, is the new Sherlock sites are they going to be a multi-pin site or a single pin uh, and how nice are they used so uh, the new Sherlock's uh, just had a call yesterday I think some are going to be coming in in June um, which that's confirmed finally but they're looking at how to package them more or less the sites are going to come just like a normal target site would where you'll have a scope a single pin scope with it uh, with a fiber pin and if you're a hunter you'll be able to buy uh, a hunting attachment which is what I use this past year and the hunting attachment a lot you know mounts directly on the rod that's already on that carbonic site so I take two bolt two screws out the uh, scope comes off which I was using a 29 millimeter that comes off and then the five pin attachment mounts right on there and you're essentially using a five pin site housing with um, and I use the bottom pin as my rover so I'll always center my peep and my housing the same regardless of the distance and if I need to shoot anything over 50 I just center front sight rear sight but I use my bottom pin and I'll adjust the sight down to the exact distance that I need and I'll have a scale made for that so it's a five pin sight that is movable and you would just use your bottom pin as what we would refer to as a rover pin for any of the longer ones um, I think they're still trying to make a decision how they're going to package it if they're going to offer the carbonics with just a hunting site um, as well as the carbonics just with the target scope and then have the ability to buy the opposite you know the the opposite one of what you bought in order to upgrade it or use it for multi-use um, that way if people are only going to be hunting they don't necessarily have to to pay for the the target scope but they're still working that out and I don't have a full say in that so 
Um, but that's what my recommendation was, is to let people buy a carbonic site either as a target setup or as a hunting setup, and then have the ability to add into the cart either a hunting attachment if you're a hunter or the target attachment, uh, depending on which one you started with. So have a base hunting or a base target, and then the ability to add on the other one so that you can convert over. Uh, that was my recommendation, so we'll see how it goes. Um, next question here is from Passionate Bowhunter saying, Does a 7-inch brace height have benefits with fixed blade broadhead flight over a 6-inch brace height because of torque? So, yeah, brace height, um, brace height or axle-to-axle length are two things that have over the last two decades been continually discussed in regards to forgiveness. Now, one of the things you need to realize is that when it comes to forgiveness, there's a lot of things that factor in. And I just had this conversation today with someone who's looking at getting a new bow and they were asking me pretty much the same type of question because they were debating between a turbo model or a regular model. And what I told them was if your draw length is shorter then those shorter brace heights don't necessarily matter as much because what you're really looking at is the the power stroke of that that string and arrow so what you need to think about is if you have a six inch brace height and a 26 inch draw that arrow is going to be on that string for 20 inches of travel. Now, if you had a 6-inch brace height but had a 30-inch draw, then obviously you've got four more inches now that that arrow is on that string. And the longer the arrow is on the string, the longer you have to make some type of a technical error in your form or technique which is going to be identified downrange. Um, the shorter brace heights were a lot more critical to shoot 20 years ago or even 10 years ago as they are now. Um, I can tell you that one of the things you do need to factor in is how many how much clothes you're going to be wearing so you know a taller person or a bigger person that me like me that has bigger hands um, slightly bigger arms if I'm going to be hunting I'm really not going to prefer a shorter brace height just because it gets harder to have clearance um, whereas someone like Sharon she shoots a bow with a six inch brace height but she has smaller hands a um, lot smaller arm. Her clothes aren't near as bulky because her clothes are tighter too. She just doesn't doesn't recognize that six inch brace height as being less forgiving, so to speak. Plus, she has a short draw length, 26 and a half inches. So again, the arrow's not on the string very long, and um, she doesn't have issues with accuracy. Now, with me, I personally do have issues with that. Um, so I tell people, you know, if you're 28 and a half inches or shorter, you may want to consider, uh, or you can consider some of those shorter brace height models. However, don't fret about 
five or six feet per second. There's really no reason to. Um, I've personally feel like forgiveness outweighs speed um, at a certain point, and I'm talking five, six, seven, eight feet per second. It's really not that big of a deal. Um, if you're talking a big variation, then yeah, there certainly could be benefits or uh, issues to have there. But another thing that you need to factor in too is how big of a cam is on your bow as well, because the bigger the cam or depending on where that string is coming off of that cam when you're at full draw, that starts to change the triangle um, of your string when the bow is pulled all the way back. So if you can imagine um, a bow that's getting pulled back where the points that are coming off uh, the cams are say they're only uh, 25 inches tall versus pulling a bow back where the points where the string is coming off the cams are say 30 or 34 inches tall obviously you're changing the sharpness of that triangle and the further you pull it back the more of a sharp angle you're going to get on that triangle so you kind of need to factor that in years ago about three years ago on my Hoyts for example um, when they went to these newer style cams I was actually able to shoot a 30 inch model bow that had the same string angle as my 34 inch uh, axle axle length bow that year before and that was with a brace height that was slightly shorter than the year previous um, so there are different factors and I was able to shoot that bow with that quarter inch shorter brace height and a shorter axle axle I was able to shoot it just as accurate because the overall string angle at full draw was actually the same as a previous bow that had a little bit longer draw length and a little bit longer axle axle so you kinda need to factor those in the seven inch bow that you have right now um, it could have better benefits if that string angle is more favorable for you versus the six inch brace height um, and again when it comes to torque um, the longer the arrow is on the string, the more time that arrow has to be affected by torque. So if naturally you are torquing the handle a little bit, if you have two bows that are apple to apple in regards to string angle and, uh, you know, st well, if you have two bows that are identical in regards to string angle, if one bow has a power stroke on that arrow of 20 inches, whereas the other one, the arrow's on the string for 21 inches, then yeah, that extra one inch, if you're torquing the bow, will be more magnified. Uh, but again, you really have to make sure you're comparing apples to apples because one company's six inch brace height bow may not be the same as another company's six inch brace height bow. Um, I can say that speaking specifically years ago, and this is probably 20 years ago, I bought a bow that was on the market that was noted for being a speed bow. 
and it had a six inch brace height and I can tell you that that bow was way harder to shoot than a bow of today with a six inch brace height. Um, overall my favorite brace height just from a clearance point of view uh, being able to shoot a magnitude of clothes as well as being able to make some slight mistakes in my hand positioning on my grip uh, has always been a 7 inch brace height and the same goes I shot 7 inch brace heights on target bows a lot as well and I've always had really good uh, success and really good forgiveness with them uh, the turbo models for me aren't particularly my favorite I think if you're a 28 inch draw length or less the turbo models are definitely something that you could consider and that you could probably get away with um, let's see here um, let's see I think it's Griffin dad <laughs> Griffin dad must be a Harry Potter fan so Griffin dad is saying first time 12 ring 3d shoot advice so this guy's going to a 3d shoot and they have 12 ring scoring so for those of you listening who don't understand what that is 12 rings on most targets are about the size of a quarter um, they're normally in like the bottom no well depending on the angle um, or the way the targets facing if you have a deer target and its heads facing to the right there'd be a 10 ring that would be say six or seven inches in diameter and then there's going to be a 12 ring that's going to be sitting at about seven o'clock um, on that target are uh, in seven o'clock inside just barely inside of the line of that 10 ring but it's the size of a quarter so 12 ring is pretty much a gamble if you shoot it perfectly you're getting two points however if you miss a little bit low you can shoot in the eight and you're going to lose two points so if you were to just play it safe and shoot for the 10 you could be what we refer to as even and the reason we say that is because if you go out on a 3d range you're shooting 40 targets if you shot 40 tens you would come out even with a perfect 400 if you went out and shot say you shot 10 12 rings with no eights you would come out and be 20 up um, or if you were on the other end of that and shot a bunch of eights didn't have enough 12s then you would be down so you know that's kind of the lingo if you go to a 3d shoot someone says how do you shoot well i'm even meaning out of 20 targets i shot 200 40 targets i shot a 400 or you'd say you know shot 12 up meaning you shot you know six 12s better than than your 10s or your eights um so whenever you go to these events you kind of have to make a choice because that 12 ring is essentially a gamble sometimes it's a gamble um you know if you're not 100 percent confident in it so there's a different mentality for going for 12s especially when they're on lower 12s and not just center 12s um so i'm going to continue on with this question um I have a fun tournament coming up in just over a week and can use any advice. Not sure whether or not known or un I'm not sure if it's known or unknown distance. Um, and then he talks a little bit about 
what he's shooting for equipment, but let's just stick with the 12 ring mentality. My mentality was there were certain targets that I was very confident in judging if it was an unknown course. Um, there were certain targets where I just felt like I knew exactly what those targets were the vast majority of the times. So on those targets, I would be very aggressive um, on the 12 rings. I was always a fairly conservative shooter, and it's probably why um, it's probably why I placed where I placed. Um, I shot conservative and I placed conservative. Sometimes it was enough um, to put me in striking distance. Sometimes it was just enough for me to be right where I should be as a conservative shooter. Um, I just felt like if I was super confident in the distance, I would just totally go for it. The other thing too is if someone is leading off and shoots an arrow where it's like perfectly placed where you have a very good reference to aim at. In other words, if someone just shoots steps up there ahead of you, shoots a 12 and you just have this perfectly bright knock lighting up that 12 ring, um, as long as you're confident on the yardage, I would say those are ones that you want to go for. Um, I'm not a super aggressive shooter in regards to I go for all of them. I know that there's pros that say I shoot for all of them. Personally, I still don't know to this day whether or not some of the leading pros did actually do that or whether or not that was just something they told other pros to make sure other guys were being careless and going for all of them. Um, I think that certain guys probably played it safe. I personally, I personally based it off of what the targets told me. In other words, if I looked down at targets and the holes in the targets were very spread out and, and broad, almost like a shotgun had shot the target, to me that told me that that target was fooling archers quite a bit. They might think it's one thing, but it was another. And when I stepped up, if I wasn't 100% confident in my yardage being exact to the yard, then I might be like, you know what, this target's fooled a lot of other, pe a lot of other people. I'm probably not the exception, so I'm going to play it smart and just shoot for a center 10. A lot of times I've done that and shot 12s. Um, other times I'll step up and look at it and I'll be like, Man, to me, this target looks like 40 yards all day long. This is a target where I have pretty good confidence with. And then I look down there and I see the arrow holes the size of a kiwi down there as a majority. And I realize, you know what? Everybody else is seeing this thing for the same. They're going for it. People are being consistent with where they're hitting. This is a good one to go for. Um, and I'll go for it. Obviously, the closer the distance the more margin you have for error in your distance estimation if it's an unknown course. So, you know, if you're looking at something where you know it's under 25 yards, then, yeah, I mean, being a yard off, high or low, unless it's some dinky 12 ring like the size of a, a ballpoint pen, um, if it's a normal size 12 ring, then, yeah, you have the you have margin to be able to to 
to go for it. Um, the other thing is if there's a ton of arrows jammed in there where you feel like you're risking a deflection, unless you need that two points, like it's do or die, I personally never really rolled those dice and tried to ram arrows into the entire mess because I've had glance outs that have cost me tournaments before. Um, but overall, when I'm practicing at home, I normally work on aiming in, I look at a 10 ring, which is again, like on a deer target, about seven inches in a circle. Um, if you quarter that circle off, so in other words, make it four pieces, I get used to aiming at my targets at the tip of that bottom corner of the pie. So in other words, I work on practicing aiming just off of those 12 rings at a, at right at one o'clock. Um, because that way, you know, if I'm, if I'm dead on, then I'm, I have a very good chance of hitting that 12 ring at one o'clock. If I'm off, I still have quite a bit of safe area. Now, again, so much factors in if you're at a known distance course then you need to be aiming at the top edge of that 12 ring all the time if it's known you're going to have to because everyone else is now recognize your accuracy distance if you know hey i'm really accurate to 35 yards but you know once i hit 40 i'm less accurate when i get to 45 50 you know i'm a seven inch group style shooter you know i can shoot in uh you know i i can't quite shoot as big as a as a coke can but um i'm kind of around that area you know i can shoot in the top of a yeti cup well if that's how you know you are then shooting for a 12 ring at 50 yards is just a super high risk gamble you're way better off just aiming center 10 and hoping for the best um but if you are confident out to 50 yards and again aiming at the safe side of that is something that you need to factor in but you also have to really pay attention to conditions super dark tunnels um, guys that lead off in front of you and shoot this bright knock that's just off of the 12 in the 8 a lot of times I call those like suck holes um, even though you want to aim off of that bright object, your subconscious just keeps looking at it and you end up inadvertently hitting that, that knock that's essentially off the target. So kind of factor those things in. I personally was never a big gambler and it's probably why I didn't win a lot of tournaments. Um, but it's a big reason why I was always safely in striking distance at the same time. So hopefully that helps you out, man. Uh, next question here is from Keener642 saying, um, just switched from the trigger to a silverback. String has started hitting my forearm. It's never been an issue before. Um, things that I can look out for that might be causing it. Had to get another drink. Um, so I sent you a private message asking you for a photo 
or a video of you shooting, you sent that to me. Thank you, dude. I appreciate it. Uh, I wish this was a video podcast where I could show some of the other listeners. But one of the things that I want you to look out for is the there's two things you have um a wrist sling on your bow and just to me it looks like that wrist sling could be a little tight um i'm not a big wrist sling fan just because most of the bows of today don't project forward enough to where you need a wrist sling and one of the things i don't like about them is sometimes i see people use them and they start to be a little bit too tight where they're actually putting some torque on that bow Um, So pay attention to that, but most importantly for you is I want you to, um, I want you to, to go to the School of Knock videos, Um, even if you're not going to commit to doing all the School of Knock videos, it would be awesome if you at least uh, took a look at the one specific to grip position. Because looking at your form, I think the issue with why you're hitting the front of your arm has to do with how far in you're setting your hand inside of your grip. And when I see you pull your bow back, um, it really looks like you're getting your forearm dangerously close to the string before you ever pull your bow back. And this is especially something that's hard for guys like yourself that have big arms. Um, You're naturally going to have less clearance. So for those of you listening right now, if you take your hand and raise it up to your side, just like if you're holding your bow, and look at your thumb position, put your thumb position at 12 o'clock and look at where your forearm is. You know, imagine a string going from your eye directly to the tip of your thumbnail. Your thumb's pointing at 12 o'clock. And imagine a string coming down and look where your forearm is and look at where that string, how far that string could be forward on your arm before it's touching it. Okay? So now that you've done that, turn your thumb to two o'clock and you can instantly see how you now have space between your forearm and where that string would be the bigger your arm instantly the difference is going to be uh you're going to have less clearance naturally so your thumb position or how you know how you're actually grabbing that bow or how deep your thumb is getting on that grip are going to be super important and the other thing is how how deep you're bringing your palm into that grip so if you go back and go to school of knock week three you can youtube that school of knock week three it's getting a grip and that's what it's called and you're going to be able to see the hand position and how it affects different things i think the reason why you're contacting your front arm has more to do with just that simple position of your front hand i think if you 
focus on only having that grip on the outside of the lifeline. In other words, you'll see it in the video, the lifeline of your hand where it comes down um, to the center of your palm at the base of your palm. Not having your grip cross over that and keeping that grip on the pad of the thumb where the thumb connects into the wrist. And then also that thumb angle and where your elbow is starting to be pointed um, are going to instantly give you some clearance that I think is going to be very favorable for your forearm. Um, the next thing as well is going to be, I'm trying to think which week it was in, but um, it's going to be specific about the front elbow. I know it was in one of the later weeks, um, but I talked about elbow position. Let's see. Um, trying to look through here while we're talking, but um, the elbow position is also critical uh, to what type of clearance you're going to have. Okay, so that's in week 10 is front elbow position. So if you don't want to do the whole school and knock series, look at week three and then look at week 10 and you're going to be in good shape really quick, dude. Let's see here. Adam Kilgore, what are you asking? Turkey bear is always popular this time of year. Um, let's see. The new tech bulletin for the RX3 slight Sight plate, um, yeah, so there's been some a lot of questions about um, the RX3 and the sight plate on there. What's crazy is for the amount of bows I've built for people as well as my own, I have yet to see that issue um, at all. So I actually need to personally see one. Um, so how many questions do you have? Um you have way too many questions. Uh, new rules on New Mexico and Colorado, other state apps. I don't personally know what rules specifically you're talking to. And also the new core series from Sitka. Um, yeah, so there's we're actually going to be doing some podcasts coming up pretty soon talking about some of that. Um, I'm going to, I've got this year, I guess I'll just announce it now. Uh, this year's Turkey camp here in Iowa for uh, the infamous knock on turkey belt. It's going to be myself, uh, two buddies who you guys don't know. John Barklow will be here. Andy Stumpf will be here. Trevor will be here. Um, but it's going to be a fun time at camp. We're going to be doing some podcasts and some of the things that we talk about are for surely going to be on the new Sika stuff side. Um, I just personally continue continue to be educated myself on some of that stuff. And the more I meet people that hunt in very extreme conditions, like, for example, last week I was with Cole Kramer, who's on the cover of Bow Hunter right now with a world, the new world record uh, brown bear that he was with one of his clients for when he shot. Uh, just talking to him about, you know, the extreme conditions he in, he's in and 
what type of system he uses for that, how he layers, um, all that stuff, super fascinating. So uh, Barklow is definitely the voice for that type of stuff. So we'll get into some of those discussions with them coming up here pretty soon. Uh, next question here is Joey Lee Levescu, 123. Uh, just got my girlfriend into shooting a bow. What arrows do you suggest for a 40 to 50 pound, 25 inch draw for deer hunting? So she's not really far off of, um, Sharon and for Sharon she shoots a little bit longer draw uh, by one inch but she shoots right at the bottom end of that poundage for spectrum and we've had really good luck with an axis 600 with um, the standard aluminum insert um, she's been shooting the the uh, just a cut on impact head like a trocar um, has worked really, really well. Or um, now Muzzy actually has a brand new uh, broadhead that's a single piece that's a lot like a Montec. Montecs are good um, as well, but any type of cut on impact head, you know, I wouldn't recommend anything with like a, a bone busting tip or something that has to drive hide very far before it penetrates um, are really important. You're going to have to avoid a mechanical broadhead if she's shooting that short of a draw and that short of a poundage. For Sharon, we're actually shooting um, the Max Pro veins, but in a six fletch. They work really good. Um, what I like about that is with a lot of the bows for shorter draw lengths, this goes back to what we talked about earlier, you have to factor in what is their brace height. Now, a lot of these uh, shorter draw length bows also have sh much smaller cams. And because the cam itself is smaller, the distance from the axle to where the string is coming off that cam when the bow is at rest is shorter because essentially imagine a wheel with um you know if you poke a hole in the center of the wheel the distance from the center to the outside of that wheel is one distance on say a cam that's a number three and then if the number one cam is half of that diameter then obviously the string is closer towards the axle and essentially the string will be closer to uh the grip on a bow because your brace height is going to be shorter on a smaller cam than it will on a longer or a, a larger diameter cam. So Sharon shoots a number one cam on her bow and so her brace height is shorter than that same exact bow with a number three cam on it. Because that, br that brace height is shorter, that arrow and where it sits on the arrow rest when the bow is at rest um, is much closer to the launcher blades and much closer to the flipper. So when you flip that rest up, um, essentially, if you're shooting too long of a vein, the vein is already contacting that 
arrow rest or the launcher. So if you're shooting a QAD, if you're shooting a whisker biscuit, if you've got a short brace height and you're shooting a long vein, those veins are already in there. What I like about Sharon's configuration is that she just has a small two inch vein. So the vein is staying behind the rest. It You don't have to worry about it interfering with the arrow holder or anything like that but because we're shooting a six fletch she has the steerability of essentially a vein that's double that length but in a three fletch so consider that man a 600 uh, aluminum insert cut on impact head with a short vein six fletch i personally recommend the max pro uh, vein, which is a little bit lower profile than a standard Max Hunter. Um, I think it's a little bit better for clearance as well. Um, and they're super quiet. They have great rotation. They work really, really good with uh, with any type of fixed, I shouldn't say any type, but a lot of the fixed blade heads uh, that I've had her shooting. Works awesome. Hopefully that helps you out. Um, let's see, Elk Hunting 101, that's what Laser Archery 21 wants to talk about for newbies on public land. I'll have to get to that later, man. We're kind of in turkey season right now. I know I'll get to it, um, soon, but there's also previous podcasts about that. Um, I appreciate you getting involved, though. Sorry. Um, let's see here. Uh, I'm looking at okay anyway to make sure your third axis is level on your bow sight but don't have the tool to do it you know one of the easiest ways to make sure your third axis is level is eyeballing it I mean you're gonna get pretty darn close anyway so if you have your arrow on your arrow rest in the up position and your arrow is running in a straight line essentially if your third axis is correct on your level your bubble should make a perfect T to that line that your arrow is making so if your arrow is on your rest you have that perfectly straight line you want to make your bubble to where it's at a perfect 90 degree angle to that arrow. Um, If you can do that, and a lot of times I can eyeball it super close, um, that's what's most important is your front bubble has to be 90 degrees from your arrow running through the riser. Now a lot of people want to measure the third axis when you're at full draw on your bow because if you torque your bow then essentially you're twisting your riser and if you twist your riser you're twisting your sight if you're twisting your sight then you're starting to twist your level and if that arrow is still running in a perfectly straight line down that arrow rest now your level is turned so you're not accurate for your third axis because you're not having that level at 90 degrees from the arrow. I personally like to hope that I'm not torquing my riser like that so that's why I really set mine when the bow's at rest more so than when the bow's at full draw. I 
try to avoid bows that have a lot of system torque in them. Um, so if you don't have that, that's the easiest way to do it. Otherwise, um, Hamski makes a third axis level. They're not really expensive. Um, I actually have one that's specialty archery made, and mine's probably 20 years old, and I still use it. Otherwise, Brightsight makes one that you can actually mount your sight to and move it up and down. But the bottom line is for third axis to be correct, the front uh, level needs to be 90 degrees from the arrow shaft. Uh, let's see. Knock on Newman. Um, let's see. You're just being sarcastic. Um, so, well, you're actually paying me a compliment, and I appreciate that. Um, let's see. TLC Outdoors asking importance and how to find exact draw length and more for more experienced archers looking for peak performance. Um, I had this conversation with my buddy Matt, um, who's one of the engineers at Faradine the other day. And, you know, when it comes to draw length, there's... Uh, it's funny because what makes it a little bit fun a little bit weird is i'm shooting people's bows that aren't my draw length probably as much or more than i'm shooting my own draw length nowadays and i can pull back a variance of bows and make the draw length essentially look like it fits me um and a lot of that variation is me completely adjusting my front scapula so that my anchor position and my head position are always the same but I'm taking up the slack in my front scapular positioning which is hard because um, if I was shooting a silverback it's much much harder for me to to be able to get that shot to fire when I'm shooting something that's too short because my front shoulder is essentially compressed and, and collapsed back. So my ability to pull through is a lot harder, which is why if I am shooting um, someone's bow that's a lot shorter than me, I'm typically using a trigger release like my knock to it where I can just build pre build pressure on that release with preload on my thumb to where I'm not having to pull through as far as if the bow perfectly fit me. And what I've noticed is I can get a lot of that stuff to, to feel pretty good. Fine-tuning the draw length, personally, I feel like isn't as important. You know, and this is for the guys that are asking to fine tune their draw length to like, I know people are like, well, I changed my draw length an eighth of an inch and just it, right away, everything felt so much different. Um, it's really hard for me to notice a big difference when I'm talking an eighth of an inch draw length or a quarter inch draw length. Cause I've, I can vary, I can vary an inch and a half or two inches. And if it's shorter and and still make it work. Now, overdrawing is something that's a lot harder to deal with. But when it comes to fine-tuning your draw length, one of the ways that you can really do that without having to, to make a lot of adjustments is either in your loop length or you can always work on adjusting your tiller just a little bit. Um, 
so if you back your tim tiller bolts out or if you back your limb bolts out just a little bit um, or I shouldn't say a little bit, but if you back them out like one turn, that's going to lengthen your draw length a little bit. And you can kind of play with your draw length just by adjusting the tiller bolts and just make sure you're doing them both even because you want to keep your bow in your cams in sync and you also want to... Um, you want to make sure that your knock point stays the same because if you back out just one versus the other, you'll start to change your knock positioning as well. Um, but aside from that, one of the things that I want you guys out there to try is if you've got a bow or especially if you have a backup bow, which a lot of the serious archers do have um, a number two that they're always playing with, um, what I want you to do is instead of really fine-tuning your draw length, what I want you to play with is fine-tuning your pull position. So one of the things that I found years ago was when the Matthews Apex came out, I was persistent in trying to find three bows that were absolutely identical and being in the factory, I had a lot of ability to work on that stuff where most people didn't. And one of the things that I found was even if I took three risers that were all built out of the exact machine on the exact same day and were all the same color and et cetera, et cetera, and took, you know, uh, limb pockets that were all built out of the exact same batch and took limbs that all came off the exact same plate and then built strings that came all from the exact same spool and were made on the same exact machine and same day and then built all these bows to where when I measured these three bows axle to axle length, peak poundage, brace height, they were all cookie cutter spitting images of each other. However, once I built them, I started to realize that all of them had slightly different personalities. And I still had one that clearly felt like it was my number one. And I had one that was clearly good, but not as good. And then one where it's like, I don't really feel like this one's keeping up with the other two. And it was driving me crazy because there, you know, we had access to machines that could literally computers that would draw these bow backs, draw these bows back and plot things out on an Instron machine that would just in front of your eyes tell you these things are mapping out to be carbon copies of each other yet in the hand they weren't so what I came to find out was the variation between these bows was where I was pulling from more so than how they were set up so in other words I'd take an arrow rest out of the package put it on there I'd put a blade on there like some one bow I had set up for tar for indoor, one I had set up for outdoor, one I had set up for field. So as I would take uh, arrow rest out of a package and mount it on there, you know, one blade that might be a, a wide blade, um, 
when I set up the knocking or set the arrow at 90 degrees and set that knocking point, it might be dead center when you measured 90 degrees to the burger buttonhole. It might be running exactly dead center through that burger buttonhole or the arrow rest hole. Then the other bow might be slightly indexed to where the pulling position was higher than that. In other words, I was pulling above that burger buttonhole and then another one where I was pulling beneath the burger buttonhole. And what I found was depending on the pulling position that started to change the pressures on the front hand and it really starts to affect how that bow aims or how that bow holds even more so than the draw length. So I got really, really picky about when I built bows having super exact measurements and building one bow to where I would start it dead center in that burger buttonhole, I would shoot it for several days, and then what I would do is I would retie that knocking position a little bit lower by a quarter inch, and by that I mean remove the knocking points, move it move the arrow rest down a quarter inch, move the peep height down a quarter inch, move your knocking points and D-loop down a quarter inch, and shoot it there and see how it feels, take notes. Then I would go ahead and remove that and go to a position that was higher, you know, more at the top of that burger buttonhole. If I noted that one direction was clearly starting to feel better than the other, I would then go back to that position, but then go a little bit more extreme. So in other words, if all of a sudden I realized, hey, this bow actually started to feel way better when I was at the bottom side of this burger buttonhole, well, then I would go and bring it down even lower. And this kind of coincides with years ago, Matthew's shooters had their arrow their arrows notably higher on the arrow shelf or in relation to the burger buttonhole versus some of the people that were shooting Hoyts um, back when I was competing. A lot of the people that shot Hoyts then shot their arrows a lot closer towards their hand or a lot lower to the arrow shelf than what the Matthews people were shooting. And a lot of that had to do with the natural grip position in the riser itself. In other words, if you have a riser, was your grip exactly center in that riser or was it lower in the riser? For example, a lot of the people that shot like the Matthews Conquest back then, the grips are noticeably lower in the riser versus, you know, you look at like an Ultra Lead or something like that back in the day where the grips were much more centered. So that has a big effect on how those bows hold and essentially how they feel. And I think that that is way more of a valid question than trying to fine tune your draw length by an eighth inch or a quarter inch. I think if you want to adjust your draw lengths in those little increments, adjust those with your loop length. Essentially, when you look at how the bow should fit your face, I really think that it should be right at or slightly past the corner of the mouth, string at the tip of the nose. If your draw length of your bow, depending on your axle to axle length, is fitting you like that, then the loop length should be adjusted so your anchor position can be in the correct place on your face or also 
the position of the rear elbow if you're overextended and the elbows too far around or starting to go flat or if the elbow is starting to point down then you may need to shorten that D loop a little bit so that that release hand can come up some even though the string is still fitting your face exactly how I described um, but I'm a huge believer in pull position will affect how that bow points and how that bow aims much more than um, much more than the draw length, and I think uh, I think if you guys play with that, you're gonna uh, you're gonna like it. Uh, let's see. Next question here is from JPC or JP Cooper seventy nine, um, asking my opinion on the Easton T sixty four. Um, is this the new age of arrows? I would say no. Tapered arrows have been out for a long time, so um, definitely not a new age. It's just something that's coming back. I think that there's arguable benefits to it. Um, obviously being able to use a standard, um, thread for the front field point or broadhead is definitely an advantage over having to use, uh, the deep six threads. Uh, you have more options out there as well as if you're going if you're going from an old arrow over to this arrow you're able to use your old broadheads and not not throw them away or not be able to use them because you need a different thread size um but me personally i feel like there are definite benefits to a four millimeter arrow in regards to ballistic benefits of um you know crosswinds or even penetration obviously smaller diameter with a smaller diameter arrow with the same weight as a larger diameter of equal weight the smaller arrow is going to penetrate better it's just less drag um, but I am personally not a fan of the options for the knocks that are going on those four millimeter hunting arrows um, I feel like um, I personally really like to shoot night lighted knocks so for me personally I feel like I want to be able to shoot a lighted knock and I really really like the X knock um, the X knock is a is a I like how they fit the string I like the length of them I like the stiffness of them I like all of the lighted knock options that are out there for the X size. And for, if you're a nocturnal shooter, you have the options of two different nocturnals in an X size. You don't have to use the bushings. If you're using the uninock, you can just put the arrow straight in. Um, for those reasons, I personally feel like the five millimeter are better for what I personally like. Um, I haven't shot the T64s. I have shot plenty of other tapered arrows in the past. Um, just not necessarily this one. But again, um, it's, it's really not anything new for me personally. I'm not a, a huge uh, fan of the 4mm diameter in regards to hunting applications. Um, I feel like if I was able to use an X knock in there without having to use an adapter, I feel like I was, if I was able to use a standard, um, 
the standard thread without having to use an adapter, I think it would be great. I feel like if I could, you know, have a knock, a lighted knock that went directly in that was still stiff, wasn't, didn't get flexible, that would be awesome. I feel like if I had broadheads that were actually just machined down to where they went you know, I almost glued them straight in and it was like a one-time use thing, which I did do that years ago for, for ACEs, uh, to hunt with, took, took heads and milled them down to where they just glued straight into the center of the shaft, just like, um, a target point would. Um, I think that they would have benefits for that. But when I factor everything in to me, a knock is a critical connection point, and I personally now, if you're going to shoot the standard knocks that come on them, uh, there, I don't. There's no problem with those at all. But I'm a big advocate. I like to know where my arrow lands, especially in hunting situations. I really like lighted knocks. I think that they're super beneficial for hunters to be able to confirm impacts and and find your arrows and not you know, not have them out in a farmer's field, et cetera. Um, so for that reason, I personally am going to stay with the five millimeter. Uh, let's see here. Raynot 13 asking, I'm using a hinge release right now, but think about thinking about getting a silver back. Um, what will be the biggest thing to keep in mind? biggest thing to keep in mind is finger on the safety that's the biggest thing make sure your fingers on the safety um like i said before there i did a podcast with john barklow um not too many podcasts ago you might want to go back and listen to it we talked specifically about releases and different types and how um i'm actually looking here um going to go back and try to find you the podcast number but we did talk about how the different um releases have different um applications and i think it's important that people realize that each one of those releases carry a pretty a pretty important aspect of shooting and what they can teach you i think if you've been shooting uh if you've been shooting a hinge release for quite a while i think you might realize that you're very adamant on aiming and waiting um and you'll also probably find that you're starting to move your to use your hand to manipulate the release more so than being dynamic through your release and there's an important thing to learn there i've had people just in the last few weeks that said that they shot hinges and went to the silverback and realized right away like oh man i am not really pulling through i'm just kind of waiting kind of just statically waiting and aiming and then i've had people that were silverback people that went back to a hinge because they were hinge releases shooters before and when they went back they're like holy cow am i so dynamic with my hinge release they're just 
the silverback just teaches it teaches dynamic shooting that's the best way to say it um whereas you can be static you can be static well you can be static with the silverback but it won't go off you can be static with uh trigger release and you can continually just build pressure by making a fist with your hand and you can get it to go off you can be static with a hinge release and again you can just manipulate the hand and you can make it go off however it's my personal opinion um and i think it's can be backed up with fact that compound bows respond better to dynamic force than static force and having continual pressure on that back wall is something that uh that gives you tremendous accuracy even with more movement in the front sight uh the podcast that you would want to listen to is podcast 218 uh, it's called Winter Training with John Barklow. Uh, that podcast would be really, really helpful for you to, to get a little bit more in depth on that conversation. Uh, let's see here. Um, Matthew, I think it's Fife underscore Fife. Uh, talk about your tournament pass score competition. Maybe bring in someone you traveled with. Uh, if I ever see myself getting back into competitive archery, uh, well, the podcasts that I've done with Dave Step are definitely podcast. You can go back and listen to some of those. Um, I roomed a lot with Dave. Um, roomed a lot with Jerry Carter. Um, I guess past scores. I don't know. The longer I'm, a, the longer I'm away from target archery the the faster that stuff gets out of my head um i think honestly it's for whatever reason and i don't i definitely do not have any problem with target archery and i think it's a really important thing for archery to have and i know that it's it's a lifestyle that that got me where i'm at and something that i know a lot of people you know, or dedicating their entire lives to just competing, um, as well as certain aspects of archery in general, like the, you know, like world archery, for example, um, good friends like my buddy Juan Carlos or Tom Dillon, you know, they're, they're literally dedicating their whole life to tournament archery and making that grow. Um, but me personally, I just feel like I feel like for whatever reason, um, when you start to put numbers on things like that, I feel like there's a certain aspect where it's good, but then another aspect where, where maybe you start to lose grasp of other things that are really important. And I don't know, I'm not really saying that really well, but I look at it a lot like, um, right now with with hunting you know there's so much focus on score and you know hey how what's the score of that animal and you know it's one of the first comments where you know i'm just really happy that i prepped for the hunt the hunt was a success in relation to you know i made the shot that i want to made i prepped 
you know, I was in an experience with people that I really wanted to be there with. It's a memory I'll never forget. I'm able to enjoy that moment. And for me, it was a win. You know, a win for me doesn't have to be a 380 bull. You know, it can, I've shot bulls in, in Alberta that had one horn with, you know, four points on one side and I was absolutely ecstatic and it was it was a total victory whereas you know if it was relative to like a tournament for example you know it wouldn't be a win in everyone else's eyes and as an archer when I went out and competed there was certainly goals that I had and I really wanted to win a tournament um, but I also started to realize that every time, every time a tournament was won, there was another tournament the next weekend. And you quickly realize that, you know, whatever you've won in the past just really becomes irrelevant because it's just a continual cycle that's just going and going and going and going. Now, I really feel like my knowledge and my experience grew and gave me the ability to to talk about the things that I talk about now. Um, but it was also during a different, completely different time, you know, in my life. And now being super passionate about hunting and being passionate about, you know, seeing, seeing the sport grow in different ways. And in, in, in that I'm talking about bringing people into our sport that I think give it more coverage to a broader community. I feel like, that is way more of a win for me and something that I don't know it's it's something that will never tarnish it's something that you know I look at I look at trophies and mugs and medals that I have and all of them are discolored and tarnished but you know I look at people that I've got into archery um, that it changed their lives and people that have become just super good friends of mine and realize that these people they just continue to shine and every time I see them it's like you know it's like winning all over again so I just feel like my direction has changed um I really have no desire and no fire to compete um I think of myself when I was in my 20s I mean and and Keep in mind, people, this is 20 years ago. It was two decades ago that that's where my heart was. And, you know, my 20-year-old self would have wanted to win way more than I want to win right now. Um, And that's a big factor in competition is, you know, this true desire to just win and um, put everything else aside to to do that. And with me right now, I'm so focused on trying to be at the next thing where I can, you know, get someone else a bow for the first time or get someone else on a hunt for, for, for the first time or put out another video or worry about another podcast. There's just no way that even my 20-year-old self would have been able to do all that. It's just, it's not there's not enough time in the day to be able to do it something has to give and you know when I made the decision to to you know back out of um 
back out of the world archery events however many years ago it was because of the fact I, I was not willing to commit to going to all five tournaments because the last tournament in the in the finals would have been slap dab in the middle of, of elk season and it just was not something that I was wanting to do so it's uh I don't know it's a hard thing because I'm not super passionate about doing it myself but I'm but I am passionate about other people that are in that moment of time. Um, you know, I love working with people that want to go and win their first event. I, I just, I love the feeling of seeing people post their first 300. And I love talking to friends that are like, I'm one point away from it. How do I get it? You know, I, I love that. Um, and I like being able to go in my target range and, shoot a 299 and get pissed at myself and be like, come on, you know, this isn't where we're at. Let's, let's, you know, let's get back to where you need to be and working towards, you know, getting where I need to be. But, you know, just keep in mind, I, I did that during a time where I really, really wanted it. And that's, that's all I did. You know, I just shot hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of arrows every single day. And, if I had any type of second of spare time, I was driving to a tournament, whether it was some archery shop an hour away that had a, you know, an archery league that night or someone that had a, you know, a two hour five spot shoot or someone that had a, you know, a big, a big tournament for the weekend, or if it was going to a major event, it didn't matter. I was always trying to find something, but right now I'm like, trying to find family time trying to find some time to get on another hunt where I can you know experience something with with friends where I I know it changes their lives and there's definitely times where I want to do an event where our entire community can be there and for that situation, it's going to be the total archery challenge. You know, I'm going to focus, I'm going to dedicate, I'm going to put time into that event. I feel like last year, um, when I went to that event, I feel like I was definitely able to represent myself, but you know, there's also people out there that are a hundred percent dedicated true professionals to archery that do it every day all day and you know those guys are going to be a few points better than me that's just all there is to it i don't see why they why they wouldn't be um you know time wise i think if you put in the time you're going to see the reward at some point but if you're you know if you're slacking on time you're going to see that result on especially on the tournament field and especially even more on the professional field you just you don't have the ability to be mediocre with true professionals and even a true professional can't be at 90 percent when the other guys are at 100 and i feel like that's all i have time for is probably to be at you know 80 or 90 percent and I think it's enough to to do what we're doing and and to grow archery and and for me to give back to you guys but um I just don't 
have it in me to to spend weeks and weeks and weeks training and weeks and weeks and weeks on the road uh to to shoot for a trophy or or to shoot for a check that's just me personally but if you're at the point where that's what you want hey i'm going to give you all the tools i know of to where you can make that happen and i hope you love every second of it uh next question joe michael russell man that's three first names that's pretty cool. Uh, peep size for hunting, 3 sixteenths versus quarter inch, pros and cons. Uh, you're using a quarter inch but having trouble getting a perfect halo with the sight. Yep, so, hey, man, answer your own question. Um, 3 sixteenths works most of the time for me at my draw length and the type of front hunting sight that I use. Um, however, depending on how far your sight is out in front of your bow or how close it is or your string angle so if your string angle is really really sharp where that peep is further from your eye then you may need the quarter inch so that you do get that perfect halo or that perfect eclipse but if the peep's a little bit closer to your eye because you have you know a generous string angle um, then the smaller peep would work better so I feel like um, you kind of answered your own question. If the 3 sixteenths will give you a perfect halo, then go for it. However, if you know if your vision uh, is starting to maybe get to the point where you struggle to see through that smaller peep, then you might have to stay with the quarter inch. Um, but for most bows, for me anyway, the 3 sixteenths is great for hunting. But I have had a bow that had a shorter axle axle shorter brace height with a longer draw length so the string angle was pretty sharp the and the peep had to be fairly far from my eye so i did need the bigger peep in order to see through it but having that perfect eclipse is uh is pretty good um next question next question here is from kurt teaster um, he's saying that he has trifocals um, and had to give up the bow because he was struggling to see the pin without moving around. Um, he said he's going to see if there's an option there, and he asked for help. And it looked like several of you guys jumped in and helped him um, with that. So, um, and mainly, uh, you guys were saying, you know, look at shooting a verifier for the peep. I don't use trifocals or bifocals, so I don't really know the best answer for this question so you guys helping them out um i appreciate that for sure um and yeah i definitely have heard uh, about the verifier working well especially archery products makes one if you're looking let's see um lane henneman is saying if you had one arrow to shoot for all game from whitetail to elk and beyond what is your ideal arrow weight foc speed pin gaps fletching wow broadhead okay you asked way too many questions for me to give one answer if we just stick with your first question if i had one arrow to shoot for all game whitetail elk and beyond what would it be honestly if i had to pick one it would probably be the axis only because and again if I say axis, it would be loaded with with 50 grains of brass in the front to 
get my overall weight and my FOC a little bit higher. Percentages don't really matter to me. Um, but I say that just because on some of the whitetail hunts I make and, and antelope hunts where um, I might make a longer shot, I do like a little bit um, speed over the full metal jacket. Um, however, if I wasn't factoring in longer shots, the full, full metal jacket is such a good overall arrow. Um, and it's also way easier to pull out of targets. Like if you're practicing a lot, the FMJ is great for pulling out of targets. Um, but it's going to be one of those two. If I had to factor in longer shots and spot and stalk style shots, um, I'd probably lean towards the axis though. If, if I wasn't having to factor those in, the FMJ would, would definitely be my pick but that's why those are the two arrows that we offer um is because those are the two that i really feel like have have the best benefits um i'll probably be taking the axis to tack um that's my that's probably what i'll have is the axis with 50 grains of brass 100 in the front um i might just shoot my hunting setup actually at the tack we will see. If not, if I make kind of a crossover bow, it'll be the axis with a slightly shorter vein, probably in a four fletch, but with maybe like um, maybe like a PM 2.0. Um, but if I don't get into the crossover type thing where I want something uh, that has a little bit more advantage then we'll see. Um, but yeah, it's probably going to be an axis. Um, let's see. Nick B 56. When will the new strings be rolling out? Still don't have an answer for that. Again, it's coming down to time. Uh, machines are here. Everything that I needed built is here. It's just a matter of, uh, finalizing my process. I've got some prototypes on different bows, some different things I've been testing. Uh, but again, it's all about when I have the time to flip that key. And if it's not 100%, then I'm not going to do it. Um, let's see. Transitioning from target to wild game. Hey, I, I'm kind of a crossover person most of the time. Really, the only thing that I change is the diameter of my peep. Um, sometimes I'll change the length of the stabilizer, but... Honestly, you could probably stick with the same arrows. Um, if you want to really get into target, sh you know, shorten your veins up like I just talked about. Uh, because you just, if you're not steering a broadhead at all, you can get away with a lower profile, shorter vein, which is going to be better for you in the wind. Um, and then smaller peep, smaller sight housing. So I'll remove a hunting attachment, put on a single pin scope. I personally like uh, a 29 millimeter scope, 35 millimeter I've shot as well, um, either one of those two, and then I'll put in a smaller peep that match that exact size, and we'll go from there. Uh, let's see here. Next question is, doo -doo -doo. oh, yeah, just moved it. Um, let's see, duds. This is coming from Daclife.dexter. Broadhead adapter rings. Do you fix them 
on with anything. I'm using the bar six on the 260 axis. Um, they aren't as snug, but they're snug enough. So, yeah, the bar six, um, the 260s, you're kind of, the bar six are a little bit loose. Um, they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be too loose. For example, if you were in a 300, the bar fives pretty much have to like snap on, but they're a lot harder to get off after you get them, after you've put them on there. Um, I think they're totally fine for, for what you're using them for and for that arrow. So I wouldn't really worry about it. Um, the only other thing you could do is, you know, if you did, um, you, know, you could try a bar five, but I, I do not think that they're going to work. Um, let's see. He's also asking, do you use them with field points too? Um, even though that they're a little bit larger, I personally, um, shoot my bars just enough to know that they don't really affect much when it comes to accuracy. Um, I use them when I'm, when I have broadheads on, that's when I personally use them with field points. Um, I don't, but again, they're, the benefit that they serve is straightness when you contact them and strength for torsional stability or like tear outs on the arrow shaft. Um, I think you're going to avoid those side tear outs altogether with the hit system if you have that collar on there. But they are super light. Um, you know, there's super, super minimal uh, difference at 100, yard, at 100 yards. So if you're a mid-range or less shooter, I really wouldn't worry about it. If you are worried about it at all, then put them on with a field point just enough to uh, to know where you're at. If you plan on doing them all the time, then yeah, you might have to buy the next size larger field point instead of buying the one that's flush with the five millimeter arrows, you can go with the next size larger and then yeah, they will fit flush. Um, let's see. J six studios asking any tips for tack, uh, more about how you pack for traveling with your equipment. Yeah, that's a super good topic, but I almost need to show you that. Um, I will, get more in depth with the tack and that stuff once we get closer um to that um to that so let's see here um i've i've marked all these questions up until this point uh this podcast is over two hours now so i'm gonna have to come back and to be continued but i'm gonna continue to plug away at these on another podcast um, but I appreciate the heck out of all of you out there, uh, leaving your comments and supporting everything that we're doing. I really appreciate it. Um, doing my best to keep up with everybody and stay sane, but also, uh, continue to, to give back to all of you out there that are supporting us. Really appreciate it. And can't say enough about you guys. Uh, have a good weekend. Knock on everybody. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com